Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. I'm afraid we've had a bit of an unplanned hiatus, but today we return with our 10th episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Dan Nexon. And this is Pat James. And we're discussing Pat James's co-authored book with Abigail Ruane, The International Relations of Middle-Earth, Learning from the Lord of the Rings. Now, I'm particularly excited to be discussing uh, Pat's book today. Because one of the things that I wanted to do when I started this podcast was not simply to interview science fiction and fantasy authors about their works or to even uh, interview uh, nonfiction authors about topics, uh, about their takes on science fiction style topics, but to interview people who try to bring together uh, science fiction and fantasy with the kinds of concerns that they're not usually brought together with. And this is exactly that kind of a book. So why don't you tell us a bit about what this book is. Dan, this book is an attempt by Abby Rowane and I to reach out beyond what we might call the kind of standard curriculum of a field like international relations and reach a wider audience. I would just say playfully, and I mean no disrespect, that textbooks, if you put that in scare quotes, generally will bore people because they're put off by it being, well, a textbook. In our case, we're trying to reach people who are of two kinds. One would be people teaching courses in international relations who are a little frustrated and think, you know, I I like my basic textbook I have in this course, but my students are looking for something new, perhaps some kind of innovative way of grasping material to complement what we're doing. And that audience is certainly there. And also, Dan, if you will, a popular audience, people who are the educated lay public and want perhaps an interesting and not completely and purely uh, pedantic, if you will, way of learning some things about international relations as an interdisciplinary field. So let's be clear. This is a textbook for introductory international relations courses that uses The Lord of the Rings as its uh, primary material to understand how international politics works. Is that right? That's correct. It could also be used, depending on the campus and the way the instructor structures the course, in classes on international relations theory as well. And it has been used already, quite amusingly so, by, believe it or not, uh, some doctoral students are using it because we cover the basic concepts in a way that's pretty accessible. We've been given some nice praise for that already that the book is accessible enough that if someone's trying to organize their thinking about the whole field, there is some value in the book as well. And Middle Earth, the Tolkien's uh, great fantasy creation, and principally the Lord of the Rings novels and movies, are used to complement material from the real world, prominent events that we know to understand the field better. So before we get into the international relations of Middle Earth, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and how you came to write this textbook? This textbook started in the closet of a cheap apartment in London, Ontario in 1970. Uh, It happened when I, as a boy about to turn 13, 
uh, opened up a box that had been left by previous people there. We had no idea how to track them down, and I found the novels. I proceeded to read The Lord of the Rings in about, I guess, a little under three days. I just simply, as the saying goes, could not put it down. For many years, I'd been rereading the books, was incredibly excited, of course, when the Peter Jackson movies came out, and, and loved the way he adapted this to the screen. And what happened is that Abby Ruane, who was also at the USC campus, and I stumbled upon each other. I'd always wanted to do this project, Dan, but you know how some things can be. There's always some kind of thing that gets in the way. And we discovered this complementary interest while sitting on a bus together in about 2006. We published a, a more truncated version of this, which was not intended to be a textbook at all, in a journal called International Studies Perspectives a few years ago, and then uh, Eber Newman, who is an outstanding scholar in the field of IR, urged us, prodded us toward thinking about a book-length version. And we were excited about it. And ultimately, that is where the book came from. Over the course of the next three years, Abby Rowan and I then worked on this. Uh, it was a labor of love. And the result is a book uh, that came out with the University of Michigan Press last summer. So you're not someone who usually combines science fiction and fantasy with your study of politics then? Uh, no, uh, my following of it has been principally someone who reads heavily in that field. And of course, uh, academics out there will sympathize with me. I do not read as much for pleasure as I once did, but I'm pretty well read in fantasy and science fiction overall. Just hadn't really done much to apply it previously in any academic way. Well, I guess I'm prodding you to, to tell us a bit about, you know, in very brief terms, what it is you do in your day job, so to speak. Indeed. Uh, if you were going to sum me up uh, in terms of my career, some of the listeners may be familiar with Isaiah Berlin's old essay about hedgehogs and foxes. I'm an academic fox in that, while I do not perceive myself as a dilettante, I work in a number of areas. In particular, I work on international conflict processes. So you might then, in our jargon, say academically that I'm in IR. But I also have spent almost as much time collectively on area studies, principally Canada, its foreign policy, published another book on that last summer, and its domestic politics, principally on the politics of the Canadian Constitution, how that's evolved throughout the history of the country. And parenthetically, I, I am Canadian and have a sustained interest in that, even though I'm now an expat. So in my day job, I teach and do research at the University of Southern California, where I hold the Dornsife Dean's Professorship and I work with a wide range of collaborators on quite a few subjects, hence that whole summing up on Isaiah Berlin and his notion of the academic fox who moves around as opposed to, say, the hedgehog who tends more to burrow on one thing. So if Canada were a country in Middle Earth, what would it be? This has come up, uh, and it's quite fun to talk about, in that Canadians like to see themselves... Uh, as something other than this. But realistically, we are pretty close to being hobbits. And I mean that in both a positive and negative sense, if you'd like a bit of explanation on the point. The positive sense comes through very clearly. Uh, in fact, the sense of Canada as a relatively peaceful country, something of a, a role model around the world for uh, evolution towards success, democracy, uh, a number of good traits there. Now, let me turn to the dark side, which Tolkien explores more in his books, Stan, than the movies, uh, although it comes out a little bit in Jackson's interpretation. Canadians, and I'm one, so I, I can get away with saying a little bit of this stuff, 
there can be a smug, condescending sense of superiority that comes about from isolation, that is, from having been greatly protected. Metaphorically speaking, the rangers uh, who are depicted early in the Fellowship of the Ring is these kind of sea shadowy characters that the hobbits don't like them much, don't trust them. Uh, they're odd folk, if you will. And Strider, who of course ultimately becomes Aragorn and then the king as the story is ended, is the most prominent among these rangers. Metaphorically speaking, the rangers end up being the Americans from, from the point of view that I'm developing here. The hobbits are being, to some extent, coddled, protected, if you will, by these very powerful rangers who they don't understand very well. And as a result, there can be a sense of moral superiority uh, that comes out among Canadians. The parallel to that is regrettably the xenophobic statements that various Hobbit characters make within the movies a little bit, but much, much more in the books, as in they tend not to like, quote unquote, outsiders. So can you tell us a bit more about the international relations of Middle-earth? What are they? I mean, what we sort of think generally about, well, until George R.R. R. Martin, I think many of us thought about high fantasy as primarily a metaphysical uh, genre. Uh, but in fact, you argue that despite this being the archetype of high fantasy, that it actually contains a lot of useful uh, information about the way that, that world politics works. So, so give us some illustrations. Indeed, I w my answer will be two-part. The first very short part of it is that the Lord of the Rings as component and Middle-earth collectively is the most highly developed and intricate alternative world that has ever been created in literature. I would defend that argument at great length, and, and, and I think I would do quite well. So there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of history there, thousands of pages of unpublished material. An example, uh, for instance, of the international relations of Middle-earth is embedded in one of our chapters about the causes of war, Dan, is what's known as a Venn diagram. Imagine uh, circles that intersect with each other, and the three circles represent the causes of three respective conflagrations, two of which are the most commonly studied in textbooks in international relations, namely, historically, World War I, now almost a century ago, and the war in Iraq, the most recent kind of reference that textbook writers tend to use. Now, one might say, you know, we have very developed ideas about how these wars might be caused, and those are chapter and verse in various textbooks. In my book with Abby, the third bubble or circle that intersects with the other two is the War of the Ring. That is the main struggle with Sauron, uh, the great enemy as he's known, versus the free peoples. Remarkably, I'll just give you one soundbite we find some of the most powerfully confirmed causes of war in the real world are also present in the Lord of the Rings. A quick example, if you study foreign policy analysis and you look at, for instance, Bush 43 and his naivety, his lack of knowledge about international relations, his tendency, for instance, to be seen as someone who was not as well-informed and thoughtful in using advising as we, he should have been, and then the principal leaders... Uh, of, of World War One, the Kaiser, the Tsar, etc., who are, are led to their downfall uh, because of their own incompetence to some degree. If you look at bad decision-making, well, we have the War of the Ring, two of the principal characters for people who are fans of the books and movies who have just awful problems and do a lot of damage to their own regimes are Theoden, King of Rohan. He is bewitched by the character Wormtongue, 
an agent of, of the, uh, the evil forces in the world, and Denethor. And Denethor is the steward of Gondor, not the king. And he is also very bad in his decision-making. Leadership, in other words, what I'm doing to unify this, is that either incompetent or malicious leadership and a combination of both, most dreadfully, can really lead us down the path to undesired warfare. Uh, the fantasy world, and I could give you many more examples, but we have limited time, does extremely well, remarkably well, in replicating some of the principal ideas from our theories of IR. Well, but that, that example, I think, raises a line of objection, which I'd like to hear you answer, which is that um, because of the genre expectations and the narrative structures of high fantasy, which are derivative of you know, myth and legend, I mean, Tolkien, we could talk for hours about how they're derivative of myth and legend and and in 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 the sort of in the the north germanic inheritance but they tend to like medieval romances another kind of sort set of source material the argument is that they would tend to favor uh interpretations that focused on the character flaws and character traits of leaders right very concerned with questions of honor uh purity correct decision making tragic heroes all of that sort of thing. And so, you know, a kind of somebody in IR who said, well, you know, that the, would, would, would I imagine say some people in international relations would I imagine say, well, but that's just a characteristic of high fantasy. And indeed, most wars are not really caused primarily by flawed leaders. Those are stories we like to tell ourselves because we like the kinds of moral parables found in fantasy. But they're caused by other kinds of factors that are less vested in single individuals, that are more rooted in bureaucracies or in structural conditions or in environmental conditions or longstanding rivalries and things like that. How would you answer that kind of objection? In fact, with two examples, the, the critics would be right to say, hey, it's just not all about personalities, people, and what they do, tragic heroes like the character Boromir, for instance, who wants to help his people so desperately that, in fact, he boomerangs and becomes a real menace within the fellowship itself. And in other words, a, a person with the best of intentions, and we all know where that goes. Now, other factors that play a key role in the story of The Lord of the Rings and Middle-earth overall come out, if you will, of the deeper so-called levels of analysis beneath the person we also have, for instance, the state or political unit and the international system. And a couple of examples would come to the fore here. If we just narrowly focused for the moment on the causes of the War of the Ring, there's an idea out there called power transition theory. Briefly, the idea is that we're most in jeopardy of war when a leader in the system, that is the, the hegemon, as it's sometimes known, or greatest of great powers, is in decline and there's a scissors effect where a challenger is moving up to par status or even passing them. We in the book get into how power transition theory helps us understand uh, the decline of Gondor, the leading kingdom of the great people, the peoples. It has a, a long-term decline, Dan, and that is a secular trend not linked to any particular incompetent leader, whereas Sauron, uh, the great enemy and uh, leader of the forces of evil in the world, he is ascendant. His, his base of operations, Mordor, over the course of a long period of time, gains ground on Gondor. And while, of course, we can't do precise quantification, there is amazingly enough, enough data in The Lord of the Rings that we can actually see that the war is taking place. And there are many uh, allusions to this among various characters as the scissors are opening. In other words, as Sauron and Mordor are moving ahead of Gondor. 
So that's an example of something at the system level. Foreign policy advising within the state level certainly comes up as well, in that one of the things you see in the outbreak of World War I, and we see this also in Middle Earth, is decrepitude in empires. That is, this isn't about any particular person sitting there and calling themselves the king or queen. It's what's the structure of advising around them. And if you look, for example, at World War I, uh, the, perhaps the paradigmatic case of this, there is nothing that resembles a modern State Department uh, or Ministry of Foreign Affairs in any of the leading powers in Europe in 1914. They're literally uh, telegraphing each other back and forth. Telegrams, for example, are sometimes being read in the wrong order by exhausted people who have virtually no staff assistant. What am I saying here? Remarkably, there is no advising structure in either Gondor or Rohan which are both monarchies, right? doesn't matter who the monarch is. I'm talking about the structure of the country. And there is no foreign policy advising system. Ergo, the incompetence, or for that matter, the characteristics of any given leader are magnified in importance, just as they are at the outbreak of World War I. Hence, to sum up, at both the personal level of analysis, which high fantasy emphasizes, of course, and the other levels, which are more out of the social sciences, uh, states and systems, the book has a remarkably intricate story to tell. So what about, uh, obviously, the central theme of, well, not the central theme, but the central action of The Lord of the Rings concerns the War of the Ring. But what about uh, topics in international relations that are not consumed with, with battles and decisions to initiate conflict and the, the sorts of things that we would, I think, immediately associate with, um, with, Lord of the, Ring, with the Lord of the Rings? Yes, uh, not to personalize it to any particular listener, but here's an example of how we use Middle Earth as a mirror and, and look into it. And we see, for example, uh, the, the issues such as public health. One of the things that goes on, I'm going to give you three short examples in, in a short burst because they're, they're not connected to warfare anyway. Public health, for instance, in Middle Earth on the side of the free peoples is pure fantasy the, the good guys, if you will, Dan, tend to smoke a lot, and they never suffer any ill effects from it. And we get into the book, and in, in the subject, as in public health in Middle Earth, is woefully neglected as an issue, if you will, on the side of the free peoples. Part of the reason for that is the book is telling a story about a great war, a struggle uh, for, between good and evil to see who wins for all time. But then the question comes, is good purely good, or are there things that we've abstracted away? Uh, another issue that comes up in the books, uh, and in our book, excuse me, I misspoke, in The Lord of the Rings, it isn't explicit, but it certainly is in our book, and that is the issue or question of mercy. And in our book, we get into the example of the Libyan bomber and how he was released by the Scots uh, due to being terminally ill this caused a lot of controversy. We talk in the book about, if you will, the human rights questions related to certain villainous characters. We develop a hierarchy among them. Saruman, who I haven't mentioned explicitly yet, who is a treacherous character, a, a wizard turned evil. Gollum, who's so out there I won't bother to explain him. Everybody just kind of knows who he is. He's in popular culture. And Wormtongue, who I mentioned earlier, who had been trying to bewitch the king of Rohan and did so quite successfully, they all receive mercy. In other words, their human rights, if you will, are respected by various characters who, 
in terms of anger or vengeance would, quote unquote, have every right to kill them or punish them more severely, yet they do not. So we have the environment, we have human rights, and we, we have human, we have public health to talk about, which I mentioned first. Now on the environment, finally, there's an absolutely fascinating case to consider here in that Tolkien in his writings was not anticipating the environmental, move, environmental movement so much of the more you know, second half of the 20th century and beyond. But certainly, he opposed the abuse of nature. There are so many examples. And a dark chapter, which is in the book version of The Lord of the Rings, but not in the movies, which Abby and I explore in our own treatment, uh, is called The Scouring of the Shire, if any listener is interested in it. In fact, it deals with the environmental degradation of the home base of the, the hobbits, the Shire, as it's known, after they come back, and this was not filmed, Dan, because it would have been too anticlimactic after the destruction of the ring, they come back, and to their horror, the hobbits discover that their territory, their shire, has been destroyed uh, in large part by filthy, destructive war industries, that there is a dictatorship, in other words, a loss of freedom that has taken place as a result of mobilization for war, I won't go on for the sake of brevity, if that's still possible. But these are the kinds of issues, if you will, the environment, public health, human rights, that are, that are not fully independent, obviously, of conflict, but, but have their own, uh, their own manifestations. Well, it sounds like you're able to see a lot of themes in Middle-earth that are relevant to the subject matter of the book. Um, so do you think there are other texts out there, particularly high fantasy texts, that are ripe for analysis in terms of their politics, international politics, that are underexploited? I know at the beginning we talked a little bit about how the standard rap on high fantasy is that it's primarily metaphysical, it's about clashes between good and evil, and so the politics simply aren't that interesting. And, you know, I don't know if you ever read it, there's a very interesting piece in the uh, uh, Clyde Wilcox volume on the politics of science fiction that compares Stephen Donaldson's uh, The Gap series to his um, White Gold Welder, his White Gold Wielder series and argues, or his Thomas Covenant series and argues that, you know, Donaldson just can't do certain things in the Covenant series that he can do in the Gap series because of the constraints of high fantasy. But it sounds to me like you've demonstrated that there's a lot you can do. So are there other texts out there that you think would be right for this kind of analysis within the high fantasy genre? Interestingly enough, I'm going to throw the gauntlet down. And I'm going to give you what may be a somewhat surprising answer. The reason I'm going to say no is not the genre. It is the level of intricacy and detail. Listeners generally will not know this unless they're uh, they're Lord of the Rings and, and Middle-earth fanatics. Uh, but in fact, Christopher Tolkien posthumously published a gigantic history of Middle-earth that had all kinds of semi-organized materials from his father, the late J.R.R. Tolkien, who died in the early 1970s. Why am I mentioning this? We're into literally small print here, several thousand pages of highly intricate details about the world itself. The background to why these movies and books feel so incredibly authentic, as in, hey, I can relate that to stuff that's going on around me right now in 2013, is that no other author, I guess in a sense you've got a strange little intersection set here, and the Tolkien, as some may know already, was an Oxford professor of philology, a now uh, archaic discipline, the study of words. And he was someone who obsessed over detail. Literally thousands of unpublished pages are available, if you will, to provide background, intricacy. A quick example, if you read The Lord of the Rings, 
the phases of the moon, when people mention them with particular dates, are all correct, right, within the structure of the story itself. I use that as just one tiny example. But if you go to some of the other really exciting fantasy writers, and I'm, I'm not endorsing anyone in particular, someone who's written a lot about a particular world, show me a world, even in a big, thick uh, novel, that has that degree of backup, that has so much material to mine and use for a book of the nature that Abby and I created. I'm going to say no, and, and if we went into sci-fi, for instance, we might have some closer contenders, but even something like Frank Herbert's Dune, for instance, to go to sci-fi for a moment. On the science fiction side of it, Dan, I do not believe there are vast appendices, anything like that, beyond the books themselves. Well, there are Herbert's notes that eventually were converted into completing the series uh, by Brian Herbert and uh, some of his collaborators. But, you know, you're right that, that Tolkien was probably singularly obsessive uh, about his creation, which raises an interesting question because you talk about all this background material, but of course a lot of this is simply background material. Did you uh, go to, uh, at least with not simply background material, but a lot of this is background material with respect to the trilogy. Now, did you go back to events in earlier ages of Middle-earth in order to extract some of your lessons, some of your arguments, think about, uh, communicate ideas about international politics? Yes, in fact, we did. Some of the historical materials are either Hobbit era or earlier ages of Middle-earth. For those not familiar, there are generally four ages, one, two, three, Three is the end of the Third Age with the defeat of Sauron and the triumph of the free peoples. Uh, an example, uh, historically, if you go to the warfare between the, the dwarves and the elves, this is alluded to in the early kind of frosty relationship between Lagalos and Gimli. And then particularly in the movie version, they go on to something of what we would call the in and around Hollywood, a buddy type movie relationship. The reason I mention this is we've mined the historical materials uh, no pun intended here, to show in our book the general nature of dwarves. Dwarves are very much, if you will, in line with sort of merchant or the ideal type of the liberal commercial type of creature in the world. And that Gimli expresses no envy, for instance, over the beauty uh, and the possessions of others, just wants to have as much for himself as he can. So within the parlance of IR, we go back to that war Look at the diverging values between dwarves and elves, develop dwarves as an ideal type from a theory of IR, and then talk about how, if you will, they're the great traders of the world. They're the merchants. They're what scholars of lib classical liberalism would see as the ideal type within the stories. I could give many other examples as well of material from a, a not-so-well-known book Dan published uh, posthumously, but that deals with an earlier time called The Silmarillion. We also use material from the Silmarillion and The Hobbit in limited ways. In other words, from the uh, prior works by Tolkien about the earlier times and also from those vast encyclopedias. Let me conclude by asking you a, a question that sometimes comes up uh, when I have sort of, uh, you know, pub conversations about about uh, high fantasy, but also particularly about uh, the international, not particularly about um, about Middle Earth. 
uh, and uh, Tolkien, which is this accusation made uh, by some that this is primarily a reactionary genre and that Tolkien himself should be read as a highly reactionary thinker uh, and as such uh, does not have much to offer those of us who are concerned with kind of the, the, the modernity and the distinctive problems of modernity, that he is a backward-lurking critic of modernity rather than someone who's trying to grapple with, with the problems of our times. What do you think of that line of criticism? I, I see it. And of course, the person who's saying that, and I'll get to myself in a moment as an example of someone who would say something a bit different, whatever you see in it, it's almost honest to goodness it's almost like biblical exegesis in that what you take from it says so much more about you than anything he actually wrote. The backstory to this is that Tolkien hated allegory. So, for instance, he was not reactionary in the sense of looking backward to World War I in particular, which he'd served in briefly uh, and suffered in terribly, or World War II, which was recent, relatively recently concluded when the books came out in the mid-1950s. Instead, he was hoping to tell a timeless story of good versus evil. In other words, absolutely, as you have characterized it, high fantasy. Why is it reactionary? Why is it not reactionary? It depends, as with almost a religious text, what part you choose to emphasize. Take, for example, Eowyn. Uh, the character of Eowyn, who is a shield maiden of Rohan, is an eye-popping character, a jaw-dropping character, in that these books were largely written uh, before, for instance, anybody had ever heard of Simone de Beauvoir, right? Before anybody had heard of female characters taking on, uh, if you will, the characteristics of what liberal feminism argued for, namely competing directly with men, being allowed to take on the roles that men have. Well, there's Eowyn, and no one in their right mind could say, well, Eowyn is a reactionary type of manifestation. Whereas the way the hobbits are romanticized, as in they love good earth, they love things that grow. They are obviously a throwback to the idealism of the the idealization, excuse me, I misspoke, of the British yeoman. So in that sense, if you wanted to pull something reactionary out, it's like, how dare you react? You know, you're, you're my goodness, you're you're taking the British class system and idealizing it, for goodness sakes. Yet the same author has a character like Eowyn. I could go back and forth, Dan, like a ping pong ball and give you a hundred examples in either direction if we had time where, hey, you know, that looks pretty reactionary to me, or hey, that looks pretty progressive to me. And it's all in there, not surprisingly, in this incredibly complicated thousand-page novel. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to come on today and do the podcast. Uh, I hope it's been as interesting for our listeners as it has been for me. Uh, I actually have had some previous exposure to uh, to Pat's arguments, uh, having been one of the reviewers for the International Studies Perspectives piece that he mentions. Uh, nonetheless, I urge everyone to go out and buy the International Relations of Middle-Earth, Learning from the Lord of Rings. If you want to learn a great deal about uh, international relations or you're just interested in what scholars of politics have to say about the Lord of the Rings, uh, it's a very good read. Thanks so much again. And thank you. You've come to the end of another installment of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This episode was recorded in March of 2013. So long!